KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. It's perhaps the most promising bit of news we've had during this pandemic. Dr. Fauci's announcement that a clinical trial overseen by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease had found that the antiviral drug remdesivir was able to shorten recovery time for some COVID-19 patients. And he said it could be the new standard of care. I called Dr. Frederick Bushman, chair of microbiology at Penn and the co-director of the Center for Research on Coronaviruses, to talk about remdesivir, and we ended up covering a number of topics, including vaccines and the president's insistence that the coronavirus may have been developed in a Chinese lab. We, of course, called you to talk about the antiviral drug remdesivir. Dr. Fauci said it showed a clear-cut positive effect in diminishing the time to recover, but he didn't say it was really kind of like a blockbuster drug. Can you um, give us your reaction just off the top to that announcement? Well, I agree with Fauci. They did get a statistically significant effect. Patients recovered 31% faster, 11 days versus 15 days to discharge. It was a carefully done trial. It's probably worth going through that since this may be a little confusing from some of the uh, news reports. You can give somebody a drug and maybe they get better, maybe they get worse, maybe they stay the same. You really have no basis for saying it did anything. The only way you know anything is if you get a bunch of people, randomize them into two different groups, that is distribute them randomly into two groups, treat one with your hoped for therapy, treat the other with a sugar pill or a placebo, some inactive material that you can't tell from the active material, then measure what happens really carefully and ask if there's a statistically significant difference at the end. You don't know anything unless you do that kind of randomized placebo-controlled trial, as they're called. It could be that your hoped-for medication is making people worse, and you wouldn't even know it if you didn't do a careful clinical trial like that. I think that's not been coming through in some of the national media. So this is the first example of a serious clinical trial for an antiviral treating Uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, which showed a signal. Now, it's not a slam dunk. It was a detectably better effect, 31% faster to discharge with a certain set of patients. For death, they saw 8% versus 11.6%, if I understand the media reports correctly, which is a little better, but does not achieve statistical significance. It's a trend, as we say in the business. It something that might be a real measurement, but might not be too. You need more data to be able to tell for sure. Can you tell us um, what would be statistically significant for that, the mortality rate? I don't know. Um, It's all a function of how many total subjects. You see, there's a whole background. The whole field of statistics will tell you what's hard to get by chance, what's easy to get by chance. People usually say, um, well, I'm going to think it's probably not chance if you would get this result by chance one time out of 20, 5% of the time. So often that's the cut value, one time out of 20. If it's 
less common rant by chance than one time out of 20, then I'm going to say it's statistically significant. And to do these kind of clinical trials in a fair way, what you do is you declare all of this stuff before you start the trial. You say what you're going to measure, what the outcome measurements are going to be, what your statistical cut values are going to be, and then you run the trial. That's the only fair way to do it. You can't sort of make it up as you go along or rework things at the end or something like that or or you haven't done a, a careful study. So you have to map it so, out first. Yeah, you have to you have to commit yourself to what are going to be your measures and your cut values for significance. And so I'm actually not I'm actually not certain what cut value they used for that death number, but they were close but didn't make it based on the statistic they declared at the start. Well, I think one of the things I read um, Gilead did its own, Gilead's a drug maker and they also had done their own study. So there are actually a few studies out there. But one of the things I noticed when I read through their results was that there was a window, a 10 day window between onset of symptoms and to give this drug where it really helped. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about when during the disease course is remdesivir likely to be most effective. Probably one guess would be early is better um, as virus replication is ramping up. If you can diminish the rate of viral replication, maybe you can uh, avoid bad things happening later. Later on, it may be there are other mechanisms involved. It may be that your immune system going haywire is an important part of why people get really sick. It's a great mystery in the field as to why some people get really sick. Others don't have symptoms, have mild symptoms. But by the time you're really, really sick, it may be that the antiviral isn't going to help you. You're past the point where that's going to be most mm-hmm. effective. And that's the thing you were just talking about, the this the immune response. The, the immune system goes haywire. And from talking to doctors for previous podcasts, from what I understand, at that point, the virus, they say the virus is actually starting to leave the body. And it's the effects of the virus, the damage that's been done, that frankly is what does patients in. Yeah, um, we've seen that with influenza as well. Often you get flu and then overreaction of the immune system afterwards or inappropriate immune response can be the, a source of a lot of the morbidity and mortality. And so people now are trying to figure out how much that's playing out in SARS-CoV-2 and it seems likely that it is. Yeah. And we've heard now, I mean, it was first thought it was a respiratory disease and it it, it, it feels like this is changing almost on a daily basis where we are finding out how the virus attacks the body in so many different ways. It, it's certainly a respiratory disease. It certainly is having respiratory effects in many subjects. But the virus also grows in like gut cells and other cells. And there's GI uh, issues that are associated in many subjects. It's probably growing in gut. Um, heart may be an a important location. Uh, there are effects on taste and smell that many people report. So it's not clear what cells the virus is infecting there, but presumably something in that system. So yeah, many, many different locations, not not strictly uh, respiratory, though respiratory is a big part of it in many patients. So can you talk, do you know enough about how um, remdesivir works? Can you explain that to us? Sure. The virus to to grow, make more, more copies of itself. It has to copy its genetic material. So it encodes, the the viral genome encodes a machine that makes new copies of the viral genetic material. That's called a polymerase. Remdesivir is an inhibitor of the polymerase. 
One thing that may be worth unpacking a little more, remdesivir was made to inhibit the Ebola virus polymerase. The reason it exists is because of that. It's been repurposed to try to treat COVID-19. However, it was never made for targeting COVID-19. Many of our drugs kind of work, or remdesivir kind of works a little. It may be better for patients than not having remdesivir, but it's not extremely effective or something. For example, the HIV drugs are unbelievably effective, but that's a product of like 30 years of research. So we're just getting started for on that kind of a campaign for remdesivir. What you would like to do is take assays of viral replication in, in a test tube or function of viral proteins in a test tube, screen that against a million small molecules like big pharma can do, find ones that look like they interfere, then begin uh, making variants of those, retesting, this, uh, <clears throat> maybe get structures, use that to try to guide design. And after this kind of iterative synthesis and testing, you can hope to get to some really good compounds that are highly effective inhibitors. And then you have to take all of those through animal testing for toxicity, bioavailability, early human studies, middle human studies, late human studies. So like 10 years later, you can have some really effective therapeutics. However, of course, with SARS-CoV-2, we're just a few months in. So there's been no time to carry out that kind of a drug development campaign. Instead, we're just asking stuff that's already around, stuff that was made for other reasons. Can any of those be used to treat patients? Hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, looking not very promising. Remdesivir, looking like it works, um, maybe a bit. It's not like it's totally turning the virus off the way we would like. Right. And Dr. Fauci acknowledged that, but then he also said that it could be a new standard of care. Can you explain what that means? Well, sure. I mean, if you're a clinician and you have a really sick patient in front of you, you want to do something. You want to take whatever action you can to improve their condition. So that's the standard of care. You would use the treatment that's been judged in the field to be the most effective to try to help the patient. So it looks like remdesivir is headed for being that. But to some degree, it's because it's now been shown to work at least a little. But to some degree, it's uh, because it's the only thing available. It's, it's, it's for lack of anything better that remdesivir is the uh, be, going to become the standard of care, very likely. So that means that mostly everybody is going to get it, and hopefully it will save at least some people from becoming acutely ill. Yep, yep, yeah. that's the hope. takes so long to develop these drugs. Like you were saying, the, the trials that they have to go through, which when you think about, you know, we, we're talking about fast-tracking, quote-unquote, fast-tracking a vaccine, fast-tracking these drugs, and there is, I mean, there's a risk involved to that. For sure. There have been vaccines that uh, were extremely harmful, ones yeah. that early in development people realized were really bad, and they had to be pulled, of course. So that's why people are very cautious in these sort of early stage trials. They had toxicity studies first, start with a small number of patients, do them sequentially, not like a whole bunch at once in case something bad happens. Then a gradual dose escalation, adding more and more stuff to see what's safe. And then once you've established safety, you can start to do trials for efficacy. But, you know, it's, it's not that people are being unreasonable or something for taking this kind of a course of action. It's based on history of some things going wrong in late stages that you just couldn't have foreseen until you got into the human trials. Right. And the drug, of course, no drug is without risk. 
they did say that there were in some patients higher liver enzymes, but they couldn't really tease out whether I guess that was due to the drug or due to the disease itself. Have you seen anything that causes you concern when it comes to the side effects of this? Not that I've seen, but I'm, I haven't been close to the clinical trials. I'm, I'm a, a virologist researcher guy, not a clinician guy. So I've not been down in the trenches treating patients or following the details of the toxicity. Sure. Can you tell us, I mean, you are a co-director of the Center for Research on Coronaviruses. So can you tell me, we seem to be learning different things about this virus every day. So can you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing and what you, you've learned? Sure. Um, we're trying to help support a very broad uh, research effort at the University of Pennsylvania with many different uh, kinds of studies gearing up. There are several vaccine platforms with different researchers, uh, various attempts to study uh, viral replication, understand it better, identify new targets for inhibitor development, uh, screening to look for drugs to repurpose. One thing we're involved in is trying to understand SARS-CoV-2 infection in the context of the whole microbiome for uh, influenza, for example. Um, A lot of the morbidity and mortality comes from bacterial infections after uh, viral infection. And so we're trying to understand the full microbiology of the lung through the course of infection. Another thing that's um, ramping up now at Penn and many places is asking, you know, as people come back to work, what kind of assays can we apply to know if um, people are safe, if uh, if there's a new sort of infectious center starting? So um, Scott Hensley at Penn is trying to look at antibody responses in people to identify those who've mounted an immune response and try to understand whether or not that's protective. It's not totally clear at this point, but probably it's often protective. And then really high throughput methods for testing samples for viral nucleic acid, viral genomes. You know, ideally, we'd like to monitor a large fraction of the folks at Penn or anywhere regularly for infection and identify centers of infection as they emerge and quickly do contact tracing, uh, isolation, and squelch any new outbreaks before they go very far. So developing very efficient sort of ultra-high-tech methods for that is a high priority. Well, because, I mean, and that kind of plays in, we're, we're trying to, like you said, we're trying to look at drugs that are already in the pipeline to see if they could help. And Dr. Fauci's warned that we could see a, even a, a pretty significant, severe second round of this in the winter. Why is that the case? Just just relaxing the social distancing and the virus is going to spread again? Is that is that the biggest concern there? Well, that's one of them. <clears throat> for the 1918 flu, for example, uh, it was bad in the spring, went away in the summer, came back worse in the fall. So the coronaviruses that circulate that have been circulating for years and cause mild colds, those guys are very seasonal. They go away in the summer. So why is that? I don't think it's totally clear, but it may have something to do with the virus surviving less long on surfaces in warmer weather. They dry out faster. It may be that droplets in the air dry or it's not really clear, but it's uh, other coronaviruses are very seasonal. So reasonable chance this one will be seasonal also. We'll just have to see what happens. The first SARS went away and stayed away. Probably really effective um, social isolation in China. 
And that went away and stayed away. But with so many people infected worldwide, it's hard to believe we're going to completely turn off all transmission globally. So probably the virus is going to continue to circulate. So will it have the opportunity to come back? Will it go away in summer because of warmth and that making the virus last less well, but then come back in the fall. I think I think it's pretty reasonable. It's something we got to plan for. I hope it doesn't happen, but you know, everything's unknown at this point. Everything's so new. Everything's new. Everything's novel. Everything's changing. So, do you see any other promising drugs out there? I don't see any promising drugs. Hydroxychloroquine looks like the toxicity is going to be worse than any benefit for therapy. Remdesivir may work to a degree. What I'm excited about are the vaccine possibilities. You probably know all this, but there's new ways of making vaccines where instead of taking a, a, a virus with reduced activity or kill, a killed virus, which can take a long time to develop and often are and can be dangerous. You can now try to use viral genetic material where you use RNA or DNA as a vaccine. And those, um, in the studies in animals, those can work really well. And so there are a bunch of efforts along those lines gearing up. Those will probably be the first vaccines, or those are being the first vaccines that are tried in humans. In fact, at Penn, we, I think we just began inoculating our first subject with a DNA vaccine. And, of course, starting to measure immune responses and track the subjects and so on. So um, I think those are coming on fast. And I'm cautiously optimistic that those may be effective. There'll be, unfortunately, major issues going from making, you know, a thousand doses to 100 million doses. That's not going to be easy. It's nothing that's been done before. But even things like um, protecting healthcare workers and stuff like that can have a big effect if if there's a surge in cases and all the medical people get sick, that's really bad. Yeah. So if you can protect the medical people, that can that alone could have a big effect as, as the ramp up develops. So can you tell me why are the, the vaccines made out of genetic material safer and why can you produce them or get them, I guess, into the public faster? And what does faster mean? Well... Once you know the sequence of the virus, and the Chinese were very good about making the genetic sequence available straight away as soon as they knew it, you can synthesize a DNA um, or synthesize a, a synthetic RNA using that sequence. The chemical methods for that are very well worked out. It's something we use every day in the lab. So you can make those copies and then um, introduce those into people. And so the genetic material will program production of viral proteins, and those will then provoke immune responses. Much harder is making viruses that can deliver the proteins as viruses but are harmless. It takes a lot of work to get them inactivated just the right amount so they still grow a little and provoke an immune response but don't make people sick or growing up lots of real virus and chemically inactivating it like the SOC polio vaccine. But then you've got to be way careful that you've really inactivated it. You have to have methods for growing really a lot of virus. Um, those kinds of things are, are pretty delicate and take a lot of scale up. So being able to just synthesize the nucleic acid chain, which is something we're very good at today, and introduce that into people is actually quite efficient given the tool sets that's available. So how soon do you think, uh, how soon could we see a vaccine? 
Well, they're going into people now, but it depends on what you mean by see a vaccine. Well, when's it going to be available? Yeah. When's it going to be available for everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a a hard question. First, it has to be shown to be non-toxic. That's what's starting now. Then once you're sure it's non-toxic, it has to be shown to be effective. And then once you know it's effective, you have to figure out how to manufacture very large amounts. So Fauci has been talking about maybe a year under favorable circumstances. But some of it depends on, as I mentioned, maybe protecting healthcare workers early on can have a be sort of a tipping point or really, really help the development of the epidemic. We're kind of in uncharted territory in the large scale manufacturing of this stuff. If it looks like it's really going to work, how do you really make 100 million doses? Making test tube full of uh, certain DNA in the lab is, is standard practice. It's no big deal. But making enough to go into 100 million people or something, that's hard. So we'll have to stand up an industry, basically. Yeah. And, and not only that, but then kind of the ethics, I guess, of deciding who gets it if you don't have enough to go around. I mean, you mentioned healthcare workers. I think most people would say, sure, but then who gets it after that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's clear there are vulnerable populations. The elderly African-Americans seem to be disproportionately affected, as you've probably seen in the news, trying to identify people who are at the greatest risk and and the people who are doing the most spreading. Can we inoculate them first and uh, thereby diminish transmission? For smallpox, what um, helped one of the biggest things for eradicating smallpox was ring vaccination. Once they found, towards the end, as they were eradicating smallpox, once they found a new case, they'd go rushing in and vaccinate everybody who in the surrounding area or had any contact with the with the person who was positive. They'd try to vaccinate like crazy surrounding a newly emerged case. So maybe you could try a strategy like that. It sounds so labor intensive. And I think that that That's it, though, right? It's very labor intensive to even now we're talking about we don't have enough testing. We have to do contact tracing to isolate. And that takes people power and it takes the testing kits. It takes money. It seems overwhelming. Well, there's a lot to do. But I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of people who are unemployed. Why not hire them to do contact tracing? It seems like there's... um, there's there's ways to move this forward if there's good leadership. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate all the work you're doing. Sure. Um, you want to talk briefly about whether it's a, a escaped bioweapon or is that not what we're talking about? Oh, sure. Go for it. Um, I mean, yeah, that I mean, that's been out there. I know. Yeah. U.S. intelligence agencies, they've been asked to look into that. Yeah, it's a complete pack of nonsense. The um, this virus looks like a spillover from animals, as has m- many, many others. HIV spilled over from great apes. MERS seems to be in camels. SARS-1 came from bats. SARS-2, uh, causes of COVID-19, looks very much like a virus from a bat, maybe with a recombination with little bits of other sequences from other animals. So it totally fits with um, a spillover from animals, circulate a little before it gets in the human community, maybe through other animals. It totally looks like what you would expect for a zoonosis, as we call it, a spillover from animals into humans. 
the poor scientists are left with saying we can't you can't say for sure that it's not a genetically engineered weapon but there's no reason to think that it is it uh it looks clearly like what you would expect for a spillover from animals how does a new virus form a brand new virus how does it how is it born basically well, we don't know that it's a brand new virus. Maybe it's a brand new virus, but maybe it was circulating in bats and we just haven't found the exact progenitor. We found related progenitors. We found a progenitor of what might be a piece of it in pangolins. But who knows? And it's not like every virus in the world has been sampled. There's like 10 to the seventh virus-like particles per mil in seawater. There's just an incredible amount of virus in the world. And so this maybe this uh, spilled over, maybe it's new. I mean, one story might be that there were uh, like dead bats and uh, virus from them somehow got into the wet market in Wuhan and maybe it circulated into pangolins or if, if they were there. It looks like there can be transmission in cats. So there, I've heard some data on that recently. So maybe it circulated in cats, but <clears throat> that's just wild speculation. I don't know. There's no evidence for that. But uh, And then eventually infected humans. I mean, this is this is sort of a pattern that we've seen over and over again. Hantavirus pulmonary syndrome started in rodents in the Southwest and spilled into humans. So the fact that we haven't found an exact replica in the wild doesn't really mean that much. We, we have found pretty close relatives in bats, and uh, there's no reason to doubt that it started in animals like that. I was reading an article about how it works, and it's horrifying and fascinating, and I'm going to personify a virus, how smart it is at, it, it was saying how it turns, it, it, when it infects the cell, it actually inhibits the cell's kind of emergency response to say, yo, we got an invader here, and it, it turns that off, and, it, and that's how it kind of then replicates. Yeah. Well, it, it's, um, it's all a Darwinian thing where there are nucleic acids in the world. Genes are reassorting. Replicons replicate or not. The ones that don't die and disappear. Ones that have some way to replicate continue. They're selected for efficient growth, leaving more offspring in the next generation. And imagine that there's like shuffling of genes around as well. And so you can build up these composites that can be pretty effective viruses. And so, yeah, all coronaviruses have multiple functions for turning off host cell functions to improve their own replication. Dr. Bushman, thanks again. Really appreciate uh, your joining us and, and sharing all that information with us. My pleasure. Hope it's useful. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.